Welcome back for, are we on, Pam? We're on. All right. Welcome back to another edition of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, creator and host of Behind the Lens. You can find my movie reviews, interviews around the globe in print and online 24-7. But every Monday, you'll find me right here at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Adrenaline Radio as we go behind the lens and below the line with movies, TV, and all the different aspects, even stage. And uh, upcoming, actually, uh, some book authors will be joining us again, as we have had in the past. So we cover it all and what goes into the making of programming, films, what goes into writing books, writing scripts, composing music. Um, it's all right here on Behind the Lens. So welcome, welcome. I'm very excited. Those of you that watch, will see the video later uh, in the month, probably early in September of the show. You'll see that Rocket and Groot are back with us uh, because Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 is now out on Blu-ray, DVD, and digital download and on all of your VOD and digital platforms. Um, I, of course, had to spend time this past weekend revisiting my favorite part of Guardians of the Galaxy 2, Dancing Groot, in the beginning of the film. James Gunn will never top that, ever. It is the best part of any film he has ever done, other than Michael Rooker. Uh, but, so, it's always nice when I can bring out our little friends, you know, especially Groot and Rocket. So this, today's show, this is a fun show today for part of it. Part of it's a very fun show as writer-director Finn Taylor is going to be joining us at about the quarter hour mark. Uh, he is, we are going to unleash the magic of his newest film, Unleashed. It is, there's a fabulist quality to it. There's a fairy tale quality to it. It is utterly charming. Oops, and Rocket fell down. Um, it is utterly charming. As we meet Emma, who has a less than stellar love life and life going on. But she takes solace in her two best friends, Ajax and Summit, her cat and her dog. But what happens when the stars collide and you have a Jupiter moon and there is magic in the air and all you want is somebody who can love you the way your animals do? Well, you find out in Unleashed. And we're going to find out all about the making of Unleashed when Finn joins us. I had the pleasure of talking to him and many of the cast on Thursday night at the premiere of the film uh, at Lemley Santa Monica. Uh, but as I said, it is absolutely charming. And actually, if you want to see those video interviews, they will be up, I think. I think Lydia will have them up and out by Wednesday. Uh, basing it on what her normal timetable is. Uh, so a lot of fun interviews there. Uh, Kate Micucci, who plays Emma, the star of the film. Uh, Steve Howie, who plays Sam, a.k.a. some of the dog. Hannah Mae Lee, that you all know from Pitch Perfect 1 and 2. And she gave me some insight into Pitch Perfect 3. Uh, the, the remaining cast is absolutely amazing. Ileana Douglas, TCM fans, we all know Ileana very, very well, and it's always a joy to see Ileana in anything, and she happens to be in Unleashed, as is Sean Astin. And then a, a surprise cameo for all you TV aficionados, 
Kathy Garver of the 1960s TV series Family Affair. Uh, she played the older sister, Sissy. She actually has a cameo in the film. So there is a bit of whimsy that carries through the whole film, and we're going to talk to Finn about all of that. But before Finn gives us a call, last week I started talking about Shot Caller. You'd heard me talk about it back in June after the world premiere at L.A. Film Festival uh, and all the interviews with the entire testosterone-fueled cast. It was, you know, as I interviewed the guys for Shot Caller, all I could think of was a line that Bette Midler had in the film for the boys uh, with James Caan. And she's performing uh, during the war and all the light in London and all the lights go out because of an air raid from the Nazis. And she pipes up with alone in the dark with hundreds of men. What more could you want? Um, trust me. I was in the light with all these guys and I didn't want anything more. But something more that you all want is you want to see Shot Caller. It's in theaters on a limited basis. It is now on VOD. It's been on DirecTV. And it is an amazing, amazing film by Rick Romanois. So I actually, after all the brouhaha and the world premiere and those interviews, I got to sit down with Rick the other week and talk to him about some of the elements of Shot Caller that we didn't talk about on the red carpet. And for those of you that do want to see all of the Shot Caller interviews from the cast, uh, Holt McNally, John Bernthal, um, Juan Pablo, I mean, it, all of them are there on just go to BehindTheLensOnline.net and hit Carpet Chat or Interviews, and they're all right there for you. But one thing, we, a couple things that Rick and I didn't get to talk about, one of which is sound uh, and score, which is... One would not think in a film like Shot Caller that is set within the world of of the prison system and the moral ambiguity therein as to what defines a criminal, how you become hardened. There are so many elements uh, that take shape in Shot Caller. But sound and score actually plays a very big part in Rick's development of the film. And this is what the, our discussion that we had on sound and scoring. Pick up, you know, with the with the party scene when money gets to come back home, you hear all the pockets of ambient noise within the party, as well as shots and everything outside. Right. The sound design is so meticulously done. You hear the shots. You hear like shifts piercing, you know, body. And that's a tough sound, you know, even in a sound catalog. Yeah. Well, yeah. we made everything. I mean, the, the the thing that Victor and I and even Kevin O'Connell, um, we talked about, and it, it started on Snitch. Now, Victor wasn't with us on Snitch, but Kevin and I, I was very frustrated on that movie with some of the sound because I got to the mixing board with Kevin and there's things that weren't there for him yet and so forth. And I said, you know, I go, why do we, why do we do, why do we bastardize sound and treat it ass backwards? Why do we spend so much time now in the digital pro- process of filmmaking that we're talking about the DI, we're talking about the colors, we're talking about the, the what codec we're going to be recording. We talk about so many different things, but we don't deal with the sound. We treat it like this afterthought, like we're going to go to a sound spotting session and start building. And I'm like, I'm going to start the process with visual and beginning. And so we hired Victorinus. And so even Antonio Pinto, we were having discussions before we even started hard prep on the movie about what the movie was going to sound like where we wanted to really embrace things, 
what were what did we need to live record on set so that the sound mixer wasn't just getting the dialogue. We set atmospherics up to understand, like in the riot scenes or just jail mm-hmm. del- sort jail, um, del- jail jail cell doors, whatever it may be. Um, gunfire out in the desert so that we had all that reverb coming off of the different mm-hmm. places, you know, the rock and the formations and so forth. We came in with a very meticulous plan to capture the things that we needed, the things that they were going to build and post, so right. that when we did get to the mixing board, it was everything and then some mm-hmm. of what we had talked about. And we were all in concert with it, so that the composer, the sound designer, and the mixer that's actually going to be moving moving the faders, right. they were in the process from the get-go. So I would talk to Kevin O'Connell very early on. You know, and, um, and 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 put in the process, and that's how I work from from now on. You know, it's uh, doing already an angel's home. You know, I think I mean, and that's a brilliant way because most people won't think about sound until after the fact, exactly. and they're in post. Yeah, but the fact that you plan this out and it comes through in the final product. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned Antonio because the music incredible. It's incredible, and you would not think that a film like this. Would really that score would matter that the music would matter right. and it does it does it becomes a character to un, unto itself and he and I talked about that I said uh, I said uh, I know who you are um, and I know what you're capable of but I don't think you know how far we're going to push I'm going to push you out of your box mm-hmm. because I know we're going to get the emotional content but you need to bring us into this subversive world we talked a lot about. Um, Fincher's version of Girl the Dragon Tattoo mm-hmm. that took. Let's call it, look, it's a very, uh, very common plot that we've seen before, you know, yeah. of, you know, serial killers and investigations and all that. But he painted with this brush of the characters from the book of a very subversive world. And the sound design was very much the score of it, you know, mm-hmm. with Atticus Ross and, and with Trent Reznor. They did that. They brought this subversive nature to the tone of the movie. Mm-hmm. I was like, we need to be like that in here. If I'm trying to tell everybody that prison is a subversive world we can't just show it we need to hear it because that's actually the most um heightened uh sensory that i had when i went into prison was the sounds yeah the smell for sure i don't know if we're gonna get into smell vision again but (laughs) but the sounds of it are really 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 important that the fact that the lowest levels of incarceration are as where the cacophony of noise is but the highest levels of incarceration how it literally is church it is extremely quiet mm-hmm. and that they are respectful of each other's space. And so then what you're hearing is the clank of metal, the radios. Mm-hmm. You're hearing things, you know, torquing and bending. The but it's not steps, people. Right? Yeah, it's not people. Yeah. The, the, the jingle of keys walking down the hall. So we talked about that really in the process of it. But with Antonio, it was, I said, you, I, you need to root us in this subversive world. So then we just kept pushing it and pushing it. And it's like even the riot scene is done in a way where it's not really an, it's not an action score at all it's mm-hmm. actually this animalistic thing that's happening yeah. to where you feel like this is what prison does is that these men mm-hmm. all have to become animalistic to survive yeah. and you feel it and you're in it, in it with them yeah I'm glad you mentioned it's not an action score it very much is not no. an action score because oh. action scores too often directors rely on them to lead to tell you, okay, chase exactly. scene's coming. And there's nothing worse than that. Yeah. Here, it's very much an emotional score as opposed to a visually driven score. Right. And that's yeah, what we, I really love. Well, Antonio and I, even on Snitch, we talked about that a lot of that 
we even the, the semi chase and snitch, you know, that there's not an action thing to it. It's got this pulse that hits you in the chest and it just it it supports and cement cements you into the world that you're in. And that's what we wanted this score to be. We wanted you to to feel an experience and let it let it give you a sensation versus like you say, telegraph or try to be some type of thrust. You know, just mm-hmm. let it be inside of it. And let you and let it have emotional underpinnings, not some type of rhythmic thing that's just trying to propel stuff, you know, and move it forward. See, that's one of the great things about your filmmaking, Rick, is that you never tell the audience what to feel, how to feel. You let the emotional heartbeat of the characters and the story drive everything. Either we're going to resonate with Dwarf's character in Felon or Kilmer's character. Either we're going to resonate with that, that's going to touch something with us, or it's not. You don't fall back on the tricks of the trade to force people to feel something or connect. And that's what sets you apart. And yes, indeed, that is one of the one of the hallmarks of a Rick Roman Waugh film. And you, you may have heard him mention being, going, being in prison. He was not in prison as an inmate. Let's make that clear. He went into a prison undercover as a volunteer parole agent uh, in order to research this film. And this is something that he did previously on his film, Felon. And in working on his documentary, That Which I Love Destroys Me, uh, focusing on two soldiers returning from the, from the Middle East and the PTA, issue of PTSD, Rick is, pays so much attention to detail and he immerses himself. And what he also did with the cast for Shot Caller they all went to essentially, quote-unquote, prison school. They spent time in prisons. They were in there undercover as well, uh, which is quite interesting when you think about who some of these people are. But absolutely amazing, amazing job on Shot Caller, and I can't recommend it highly enough. And just to give you, you know, uh, Rick mentions Antonio Pinto as the composer, if you want to hear a variance for what Antonio's work is like, Disney, McFarland, USA, he did the score on that. And when it comes to sound, Victor Enos, he worked with Lon Bender, Lon who is now with Formosa Group, a multi-Academy Award nominee. Uh, but along with, but Victor, along with Lon, also picked up an Oscar nomination for their work on Drive, you know, with Ryan Gosling. So... We're talking, you know, A-list, below-the-line talent here. And if you really want to see and hear some incredible work, Shot Caller. Can't recommend it highly enough. And we're going to come back to some more of Shot Caller and my exclusive interview with Omari Hardwick. But right now, is this the very magical Finn Taylor that I have on the line? Well, I don't know about magical, but it is Finn Taylor. <laughs> Welcome, Finn. Welcome to Behind the Lens. I'm so excited to get to talk to you again. Yes, it was, I had a great time the other night. Oh, my God. So I have to ask you, how did the premiere, after I left you on the red carpet, how did the premiere go? Oh, it went fantastic. You know, the actors are so amazing, and we had a, a great Q&A after the film, which played amazingly, and uh 
you know, we just, we they wanted to hang out so late. I'm getting older, you know. They were <laughs> they were wanting to stay up till dawn, but uh, I had to get to bed. <laughs> oh my! Well, you know, at the top of the show, I gave the audience, uh, the listeners, a rundown of what Unleashed is about, just briefly. But as I asked you the other night, this is it's such a fascinating story that I'm sure everybody would love to hear how you got the idea of melding technology, heartbreak, and astrology all into one film. <laughs> and dogs well, and know, cats. I... <laughs> yeah, um, well, I, I live up here in the Bay Area, and sort of the, the you, you know, much, much the way uh, Los Angeles is a town built on entertainment, I'd say the Bay Area has increasingly become a town built on technology. And while the business is thriving, it's still woefully underrepresented. There are not enough women in it. I think it's only maybe 20, 25% women in the top positions. Mm -hmm. So I also have a lot of friends in their 40s and 50s. One of them is an astrologer, actually. And they, they, they tell me what it's like, you know, dating online, you know, on all the different internet sets. And they, they feel, you know, it's, they, it feels like a pretty non-human connection where it's all about how tall are you, how old are you, what do you weigh, what do you look like. And I thought, what's amazing about animals is they're not responding to any of that. They, they sort of respond to who you are on a soul level, you know. They can tell a kind person or a not-so-kind person. So I thought, what would it be like if we could, if we could react to each other the way animals do? And um, and when I think of animals, I think of you know the the inherent logic of the universe. And you know, I don't know why. Whenever I have my chart done, it seems completely accurate. I have no <laughs> scientific basis for that. And uh, that's I had my chart done at around the same time I was writing this. So I thought. Well, what ha- what would happen on the night of a Jupiter transit, you know, during a supermoon, if if our pets turned into people, and they came back, and we could interact with them and hear what they were thinking and feeling. You know, and of course, that's something that all the pet lovers, all of us pet lovers out there, we all wonder that, and we all think that we know what our what our dogs and cats are are thinking at any given moment, just based on the yeah. way they're just based on the way they're treating us or ignoring us. Uh, but you took it to the next level, and you actually let us see what might happen. And yeah. that, I find, is as the story unfolds and as two fine actors, Justin Chatwin and Steve yeah. Howie, who play, Justin plays Diego, a.k.a. Ajax the Cat, Steve plays Sam, a.k.a. Summit the Dog. And what you did with yeah. these two men in casting them, you bring in the traits. You have the, you have dialogue and heart that is everything that we can possibly imagine receiving and understanding. Oh. But then you have these two embrace and embody and bring the traits, various traits of the the felines and the canines into their character without becoming a caricature. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, very often people on the outside think, oh, acting, this is an easy gig. But what's interesting about these two guys, you know, they knew each other from the Showtime show Shameless, my 
My great producer, Susan Johnson, brought on Cynthia Miguel and Stephen Vincent, our casting directors, and they had suggested Steve Howie from Shameless. Uh, Steve was also on Reba for years, and mm-hmm. they were so committed in different ways. So Steve studied video of the dog that we knew was going to play him as a dog, and he cut his hair very short. We dyed it once through a pretty painful process, and he said it's still not light enough. <laughs> so he had it dyed again, oh, God. and he has great comedic instincts, Steve, but they really are about getting it right, finding the right tone. Justin, on the other hand, came about it a different way. He, he He's not played as much comedy as Steve. So he studied for weeks with uh, um, Jean-Luc Rodrigue Louis, a man that teaches actors animal movement. Mm. And he was very much in character the whole time, you know, you know, kind of walking like a cat, moving like a cat. And it, they were both based in the truth in it. Whenever it came to a certain scene, they, you know, like what would the animal be doing or feeling or thinking in this moment? It was kind of amazing. Well, and following in that same vein, Steve's character of Sam, you have some incredible, very moving moments that you set up with Ileana Dog- Douglas's character of Monty. She yeah. is the boss yeah. of this IT company. And as we find out, that something nobody knows is that Monty is suffering from cancer. And it is Sam yeah. because, and this has been reported so many times, and some people poo-poo yeah. it and dismiss it. But I think there really is a lot of credence to the fact that an animal can not only can sense when you're ill, number one, but dogs are being shown to sense cancer, specifically. Yeah. And I love yeah. that you brought that in to this story. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. So everything in this story about the animal, like the side of the face they look at to sense human emotion, being able to sense illness, is all based on things I've read scientific articles about. I started out in wildlife biology in college, and they have, what they do is they take samples of cancer in different petri dishes and keep lowering the amount, and a dog can smell as little as two cancer cells. Wow. Before you'd ever see anything on an MRI. So they they just cannot train the dogs quick enough. And, of course, you also know they have dogs trained to anticipate when someone is going to have a seizure, Mm -hmm. someone with epilepsy. So they know it before it happens. And it was really interesting. So the movie is a, a, a comedy, tons of laughs, but the scene with Ileana is sort of one of the top-rated scenes in the movie. And when we were talking about doing it with Steve, um, we were saying, you know, a dog wants to be present and be there for you, but they're not going to protect. Like with a human, they might start crying or going, oh, no, this is terrible. But with his character, he's like, I know that's what's going on, and... It's okay, I'm here with you, but he's not projecting his own fears or terror on it. He's just being very present. He sees it as another part of life. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I really like about that scene, you know? I mean, it is the mo- it is so heartwarming and heartbreaking at oh, the same time. I mean... Thank it, you so much. Uh, you got both sides yeah. of the coin there, and Ileana just plays it so beautifully as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, I feel, it's funny, on my first film many years ago, there was one supporting actor, a fairly small role, that had a very a false moment, and it took me out of the movie for 10 minutes, mm-hmm. you know? 
ever since then, every role in the film, whatever film I'm doing, I get like the very best actor or actress I can. And I have been so lucky to work with veteran actresses like Kathy Moriarty, Nora Dunn, um, and the great, you know, uh, Ileana Douglas. You know, she's one of my favorites in movies like, you know, To Die For, Cape Fear, Goodfellas. Mm -hmm. So it's always such an honor to have, you know, uh, these kind of amazing, you know, women actresses who are like the pillars of our, you know, of the film world, you know? Yeah, and it's it's very it's ironic because I I was told Ileana was going to be at the premiere the other night, and yes. and then she didn't make it. So I emailed her. It's like Ileana, you're the only reason my cameraman wanted to come shoot for me that night. You know he loves you <laughs> because you know we always shoot her on TCM uh, red carpet and, yeah. and whatnot. And no, she was actually she did not make the premiere. Because she was working on a TCM tribute to Jerry Lewis. Exactly. And she is, that's, it was so great talking to her because I'm a huge TCM fan. And, you know, she's part of Hollywood royalty Mm -hmm. raised by her grandfather, Melvin Douglas. And uh, it's just great talking movies with her. And she was so bummed. She's been to so many of our screenings and she's such a great support. But, you know, you can't imagine a more important thing than working on a Jerry Lewis tribute, truthfully. Oh. I mean that with all sincerity. It's like, you know, that's, uh, that, for me, making Unleashed, I feel like the last several years, movies have been bifurcated sort of into superhero movies, or when they do make a comedy, they're, they're what I call R-rated frat boy comedies, kind of with a lot of bathroom humor. And mm-hmm. I saw the films during the Depression, the 30s, 40s, and 50s, um, coming out of the Depression, it's like, they're human-based comedies that, that just lifted your spirit. And, yeah. Uh, I, I just wanted to learn from that, you know, and try and bring that back a bit, you know? Well, you know, as my, as my father, who spent 60 years in television, broadcast television, all, would always tell me, you have to know the history. You have to know the history to understand where we are yeah. now and where we're going to go in the future. And that is, yeah. is so key as we see world events unfold that we take a page out of history, we take a page out of FDR's playbook, when, yeah. when Shirley Tem- they, Hollywood was ordered to make happy movies because of the Depression. Yeah. And that's what made Shirley yeah. Temple a star. Was be- yeah. one, of, one of my favorite quotes from the FDR, uh, one of my favorite, he said, uh, this is when we were in World War II, and he said, we need to put money into you know, the WPA for writers, playwrights, you know, paintings, and his advisor saying, we're fighting a war on two fronts. We can't afford it. And he said, if we can't afford that, what are we fighting for? Mm-hmm. You know, if we don't have art and laughter and beauty, what are we fighting for? That's, that's so true. And it's something that uh, the current administration seems to have forgotten. Um, <laughs> yes. I'm being tactful yes. as I say that. Um, there is yes. there is nothing more important because where do you turn when you're upset? Where do you turn when you're happy? You turn to television. Yeah. You turn to film. You turn to literature. Yeah. You turn. You return to books you read as a child, um, which yeah. I know everyone's going to do when the movie Goodbye Christopher Robin comes out. You know, yeah. in a few weeks. Um, you, totally. You go back. To you go to the things that make you happy, or that give you comfort, and that all comes yeah. from the arts. It all comes from the arts, of which film is, 
one of the biggest, biggest proponents yeah. and categories. Yeah, yeah, it, it's interesting. I got a chance to fly all over the country this past year, going to festivals, mm-hmm. and uh, the very first, or it was, I think, it was the first festival it was the day after the election, and people were laughing and crying and saying, "I needed this so badly. I've been crying all night," or you know, during some of the riots, you know. Uh, we had a screening right around then, and people over and over again, the biggest gratitude was, I needed something like this right now. I've heard that countless times, mm-hmm. um, just responding, just something to lift the spirit, you know. Um, so that, that's been great to see. And I'm talking all over the country, in Florida and, you know, uh, western Pennsylvania and New York. and uh, it's, it's just great seeing, as uh, amidst our differences, what... What binds us together is, is some of that humor, and and also, even with all this division going on, what what do we all love? Animals. They remind us, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, of our kinder feelings mm-hmm. or ability to have kinder feelings. Well, you know? and that's one of the great things that you really play to, and thanks in huge part to your lead actress of Unleashed, Kate Micucci. Kate, we're so used to hearing her. A lot of people, they don't know her face, but they know her voice as Velma in all the Scooby-Doo movies and shows. Um, I I find so many people who've seen her in so many television shows and movies, the second they see her image and her big eyes, they're like, oh, I know her, I love her. Yeah, they may not know her name, but they'll know her from, you know, Don't Think Twice or The Little Hours or Mm -hmm. Big Bang Theory or... Raising Hope or Garfunkel and Oates or one of those, you know. Yeah, she pops up all around. But I think the only thing people really, the one identifiable thing about Kate is she voices Velma. And every, <laughs> yeah. and everybody loves Scooby-Doo. See, they're dogs again. Yeah. Dogs again, Finn. You know, but <laughs> Kate is just, she is utterly charming. And you've got her not just yeah. playing against Justin and Steve, but also, you bring in Sean Astin, and Sean yeah. Sean is like a cuddly teddy bear in this film. Yeah. yeah. Well, again, talk about multi generational talent. You know, uh, yeah. you know his mom. You know, Patty Duke, and uh, you know his stepfather, John Astin. He's it's great working with a guy that's been in the business since the age of ten. He really gets every stage of his filmmaking and his totally there and generous and wants to get it right. And uh, what a wonderful guy to work with, you know. And, you know, I found with all of these, it was really important to nail Emma. I mean, as much as it was the cat and the dog, but Emma and Carl. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't have imagined ahead of time better actors than those guys. It was just, I felt like I lucked into the perfect actors for those roles. Um, Their chemistry. I also want to mention Hanamei Lee from Disney She's (laughs) in the film, too. And she is a great... Um, she's a great compadre, but also contrasts to Kate's character. I really wanted the working women in the office, you know, paving a new way, but I wanted them to be different, decidedly different mm-hmm. uh, as people, and, and I just felt like they complemented each other. And, and I was referencing Rosie the Riveter with all of the headscarves on Hanami Lee, you know. And, you know, it suits her to a T. So many people know her from playing Lily on Pitch Perfect. You know, one word, yeah. whisper, Lily. But, you know, yes. she really is. Haname is actually, she is a badass. She really is. Total badass, yeah. And I mean, she, she comes... She's done everything from modeling to acting to fashion designing. And, 
very strong and amazing woman, and she brought her whole family to the premiere. Her mm-hmm. 92 year your grandmother, her mom, her dad. She's I, also I wanted to say about Kate. Sorry, I, I kind of left ahead there. Every actor has amazing talents, their own separate strengths, mm-hmm. great comedic talents on both their ends. But what Kate has, in reality, she's one of the kindest people you'll ever meet, mm-hmm. and that comes through on screen. Yeah. And I, I got two quick stories to define that. On the set, her parents came out to visit, and we were shooting a scene in the alleyway, and there was like a taco truck. I said, let's put your parents in the scene. And they were having such fun, and Kate had such, was so happy watching them, she broke down in tears watching her parents get to be in the movie. And secondly, she's an artist. Kate sells her paintings for $1,000 in galleries, but on the last day of the shoot, she had made 90 paintings, one for every member of the crew as a gift, and gave them all to everyone. Oh, my uh, and, God. I mean, just think of the amount of work that is. It was crazy. Oh, my God. That's, that is amazing. Yeah. But, you know, when you meet Kate, when you talk to her, that's the sense you get about her. There's not, yes. there's not a, disin, a disingenuine bone in her body. Yes. Which... And, and I really feel, aside from her great comedic talent, that's what comes through. It comes through the lens, that sort mm-hmm. of, you know, that glowing person that she is. And that is sort of me as, as the axis of the film made the whole concept possible of someone being vulnerable and, and, uh, sort of needing that transformation in their life. And, uh, that was really important to know because as you know, many of our leading actresses currently kind of fit more the sort of model, you know, you know, kind of blonde, you know, mm-hmm. desired person role. And, and Kate is, so different than that. She's a beautiful woman, but she is sort of an every woman in certain mm-hmm. ways. And perky. Perky, perky, perky. perky. That is, yeah, exactly. It, you can't help but smile. When you see Kate or talk to her, you can't help but smile. You know, and yeah, you mentioned about how beautiful you know she is through the lens. Well, I, gotta, I yeah. have to tell you, your cinematographer on Unleashed, Richard Wong, I fell in love with Richard's work when he did shot Man from Reno for Dave, my friend Dave Boyle. Yeah. And Richard, I, Dave had actually done a few films, and by his third one, I'm like, Dave, you know, you're losing. You're losing what you had going. You've got to change things up. You've got to do something. And he came back with Man from Reno, blew me away, yeah. and it was Richard's cinematography that's what really step that film up and really put Dave back on pa- back on course as a filmmaker and as a I, director. Oh yeah, I I I can't I've been making movies for I've been directing since 96. Mm-hmm. And I've never had a film that I think looked so beautiful like with our film, you know, like it was a, not a massive budget, but it almost didn't matter because no matter what price we were doing it for, it looks like a, a big film. Because of his well, the actors, but his amazing cinematography—it's—it's—it's it's, it's the most, I think, the most beautiful film I've ever had, and it's all—all all that look is due to Richard's great work and working with him and having a vision of what we wanted the film to look like ahead of time and planning for that and executing it. I feel so blessed now, did, to have had him on this film. Did you guys shot list or did you storyboard any of this? We, and what were we your influences? You storyboarded. Yeah, because of our limited schedule, we storyboarded the entire thing together. 
And Richard grew up in, uh, you know, we have a long film history here in San Francisco. He grew up in the camera shops, like, you know, I, I can't remember if it was Gas or it was one of the big camera rental agencies here in, in San Francisco. And all my other films were shot on 35mm. This is the first one I've done on video. Mm-hmm. And I'd say it's the most beautiful one because he was able to get that feeling that older film had of creating a painting. Um, and he, he knows his equipment inside out. And we wanted a real visual concept for the film. We, we were saying it's kind of a fairy tale for adults, for everyone, really. Mm-hmm. And um, he, we so we really planned out every shot, every scene to have a kind of unique feel that, that they all bound together and um, just a great, great guy to work with. I mean, your visual tonal bandwidth is exquisitely done and you keep the yeah. visual tone light through the whole film. Yeah. You keep it yeah. light and bright. We've got blue skies. We have sunlight and your, you know, your yeah. color correction with the blue, with the colors that you have within the film. All. Yes. Yeah absolutely gorgeous there's nothing that's you know subdued about them they they smell life and hope and happiness and that follows through with your production design with rob reuda's work and also samantha's work with the costumes just the the whole visual palette is it is a perfect marriage yeah yeah you in it's it's interesting with the film um it, to set the tone, there's one scene where she's talking to Sean Aston where they're maybe coming up to the crazy realization that this might actually be the animals. And in the background, you have the, the lit up um, uh, skyline of Oakland behind Lake Merritt. And on the reverse angle, you're seeing children's fairyland in those bright mm-hmm. colors, you know. Um, and throughout, um, Samantha, if you notice the costumes of Kate in the beginning, she's wearing hoodies and stuff. And as we evolve more towards the end, she's wearing uh, outfits that very subtly, without being over the top at all, reference Snow White and characters like that from the fairy tales past. You know, like the red and white dress mm-hmm. and the blue dress. She's she's uh, she's channeling that more. And it was just and the same with Hanuma Lee's outfits. They were fun and referencing you know my Rosie the River reference, <laughs> but they always felt totally perfect for the tone of the film. The same with, you know, Sam's outfit and, and Justin's and Rob Ryuta helping with all the sets to reflect this kind of very specific tone we were going for in the film. And, you know, that's when you get older, you realize that's what it is. You know, yes, you've got to have a vision for a tone, but then you hire great people and sort of get out of the way and let them create beauty, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of the blessing of being older. You know, you don't, you're not trying to force your ego onto everything. You're trying to collectively, you know, bring out the best in everyone. Yeah, and it, the whole thing—it just—it's such a beautiful meld. It is—it's an alignment of all of your department heads and all of your ideas. The stars did align yeah. so that you could unleash the magic of Unleashed because it well, really—it has this very magical quality to it. Oh, thank you so much. I just also want to say really quickly, I give a shout-out to my editor, Rick LeCompte, who I've done a million films with, and my producer, Susan Johnson, and my co-producer, um, Jennifer Gaucher. I actually got in the business because we were friends back in acting school, and I'd written her a letter, and then I turned that into a short story, and then eventually 
turn that into my first screenplay that Paramount made into Pontiac Moon back in the 90s. Pontiac Moon. The letter I wrote to Jennifer Gaucher. Yeah. Pontiac. That was a film that... Yeah, Ted yeah. Danson and Mary Steenburgen. Yeah, they actually met on yep. the movie and fell in love. You know, I, I remember taking Mary to lunch the first day, and Ted said to me, can I come along? <laughs> and uh, and Ted came along, and by the end of the meal, they you could tell they really started to take a shine to each other. Both wonderful people, by the way. And I have to tell you, Mary has a film coming out, Lake Bell's uh, latest film, I Do Until I Don't, and... She plays, and wow. Mary plays opposite Paul Reiser. They play this, old, this you know, older married couple. The whole idea mm-hmm. is, the whole idea is, you know, when you get married, marriage should be a contract for seven years, and then you have the option to renew or not. And so there are basically yeah. three couples set up within the in the structure of the film, with all of their lives intersecting. But Paul and Mary. This is why they are the veteran icons that they are. They are yeah. amazing. The two of them are my favorite part of the film. And yeah, I, I mean, it, it's sort of like Mary is another one of those, I mean, like, you know, stealth missiles. Like, she's so many parts. But we, you remember in Melvin and Howard during that Oscar mm-hmm. season, uh, you know, like, she's, she can do drama. She can do comedy. She can do anything. She's amazing. Oh, well, you know, and I think it's either next week or the week after that I do until I don't comes out. So you have to make sure you see Mary in that one because she's amazing. Oh, I will, for sure. Oh. Finn, what do you have coming up next, Finn? I'm dying to see what you do next. Yeah, I feel lucky enough that on the festival circuit, uh, Nancy Cartwright and Peter Kajanis, who have a film coming out in search of Fellini, saw, unleashed, and fell in love with it, and have asked me to direct their next project called The Will for Spotted Cow Productions. They're a production company, and people know Nancy Cartwright as the voice of Bart Simpson. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, so I'm going to be doing a film for them called The Will. It is the story of a teenage boy who does not believe in himself, um, and through, um, he has an opportunity to inherit uh, a, a great fortune if he is able to execute certain tasks, which help him believe himself through the help uh, of a, his best friend, Bernie, who is a girl, um, a young girl at, at the high school who does believe in him. Oh. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's the next film. Well, I know right after the, Nancy was at the premiere of Unleashed the other night, and the next morning I actually saw In Search of Fellini. Oh, great. And blew me away. Blew yeah. me yeah. away. I think it's coming out September 15th, I September want to say. September 15th, yep. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I know. It's, it's great to be working with those guys and such, again, wonderful people. It's, I feel like I did something right earlier on. In, in, at this point in my career, I've just been, you know, interacting with, the, like, the best people. It's... It makes life a million times easier. Yeah, you know? so, so you know, when you had your chart done, did it tell you that all these great things would happen for you? Well, when I first had my chart done, this is really interesting. I was moving to L.A., and I didn't know what would happen. And um, the chart was saying, you know, your life will be filled with visual images, um, music, and money, which I had never made money before, but... I, uh, 
yeah, it sort of all came true. And not only was I making films and getting paid well, and Paramount was making my first script, but I hadn't played an instrument in years. I ended up joining a band, and we got a two-album deal uh, in the 90s. And now that band that I used to get, I used three of the songs in the soundtrack to Unleashed. So, yeah, everything everything they predicted uh, came true. Well, and speaking of the soundtrack of Unleashed, you know, I have to give a shout-out to your music supervisor, Linda Cohen, who is every independent filmmaker, every filmmaker out there. When you need a music supervisor, you look to Linda. But if you're making a film on what I call low-budget, no-budget, Linda is the person to go to. She time and time again works her own magic at getting tracks that you would, needle drops you would never think. Of yeah, a low-budget film could afford. She got us, um, aside from so many of the classics she got us, she got us this great young band, Lawrence, who's doing really well, and they've just been signed by, I think it's Warner Brothers. And they have three songs in the movie, two of their originals, and they also did a cover for the great Bobby Head song, uh, Sunny, which we use in the opening credits, mm-hmm. and that was all from Linda. And you know what I love? Just being interviewed by you. What? You know what a collaborative process film is, and you know all of the crew members that it takes to make an amazing film, you know, to make a film, just any film, you need just amazing people. And thank you for, thank you for knowing that. Not everybody knows. They, they always want to talk about just the actor or, you know, and it, a film is so many parts. It's oh. amazing. Thank you for that. Oh, that is, that is my pleasure. That's my small gift that I, that I try and give. That that's how I came up with the idea for my show behind the lens, um, because that's I love what goes on behind the lens to give us what is in front of it, and yeah. it yeah. is all these little moving parts and all these people, and so often all of those parts can help save a bad performance, but a bad perform yeah. but a good performance cannot save. Bad story, bad visuals. Yeah. Yeah, so... It's really true. With with films, so many things have to go right. And, yeah, it, it's it's interesting. The older you get, you, you know, there's... I, I always quote this old pop song from 38 Special from the 70s. <laughs> Hang on loosely, but don't let go. If you cling too tightly, you're going to lose control. So it's really about letting people do their work and holding a... a you know, a, you know, a strong vision in your heart, but really letting people shine individual, you know, all the different, all the different artists that work on a film, you know? Well, you know, before I let you go, Finn, I have to have you tell the audience about, okay, the, the one part of the film that, you know, I am absolutely in love with your opening and your end titles with the animation design, the three dimensional animation that you have. Oh, thank you for pointing that out. Um, my my friend Ellen Ridgway has worked on many Henry Selleck films uh, like Coraline, uh, James and the Giant Peach. And she, along with Tim Hiddle and some of the Oscar-winning uh, animated artists that he used, did all stop motion. And part of the reason I want to do that in this age, with everything being so digital, I wanted that handmade quality. So they spent six weeks on a, an actual physical set in the Outer Sunset in San Francisco, using some of Kate's characters to create stop-motion animation oh my God. in the beginning and the end of the film. 
It, take, it took six weeks just to get that minute or so of animation. And it, it, I wanted that kind of magical quality to let people know that it is going to be a fairy tale. But as they were doing, working on the work surface to show that this is not a movie just for children, as the paper would tear apart, you'd see the actual workbench underneath mm-hmm. and the actual tools that they use um, in, done in stop motion where, you know, for those who don't know, for every one twenty-fourth of a second, you move everything a little bit and then cut another, shoot another picture and keep doing that. That's why it's so labor-intensive. Mm-hmm. And I, I just felt like that gave that some of that handmade wonder of what it was like when you were a kid and looking through a you know, an amazing children's book or something. And, uh, yeah, I want to give out a shout-out to, you know, um, Ellen Ridgway was, was the head of the team, but Tim Hiddle is, you know, one of the more famous um, stop-motion animators in the business. And mm-hmm. uh, I feel blessed to have those guys I mean, uh, and work, have worked on the film. You know, and with it being stop-motion, you know, that's one of the great things that Travis Knight does with Leica. With all of their stop motion, which Coraline, as you mentioned, it's just to see this and to see, you know, what they do, be it from puppetry and the the minutiae of creating costume or the layers of such as with Unleashed, the three dimensional layers that get built up with fabrics and with different paper textures and things, you know, get open up to expose parts of the film. Absolutely. Yeah. It's tedious work, but it is the most glorious. It, the result is, is glorious. Yeah, there's. It's, I, I think there's no replacement for it. And it's like they used a lot of torn paper on this one, and uh, they created a whole world with it. And uh, seeing the skill and stuff, it's always, yeah, it's just, I, I again, so grateful. Like, things that I could, you know, never achieve and, and uh, you know, and, yeah, I just feel I feel lucky to be able to to have a space for that in in this film, a, a budget of this size. You know, I get so excited by that kind of thing. Yeah. So now, Unleashed is out in limited release right now. Yes, is it going on uh, to yeah. DVD, Blu-ray, VOD, digital download? What's what's the? Uh... Yes, uh, you can look for it on Amazon, on iTunes, on Vudu, and then on on demand. And it's also playing in Chicago and Cleveland and New York and Tampa and Santa Fe and Los Angeles and San Francisco and Sonoma. Uh, It's playing in theaters all over the country, but it's also available on all those platforms I just told you about. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is the new way that uh, makes film profitable. And so please find it in those, those, uh, those ancillary venues and, uh, yeah, we're, we're we're really glad to be presenting it to the world. You know, the, the, somebody uh, Justin Chatwin from England said uh, he's shooting in England right now. He put out his own tweet: "If you were dumb enough to spend a hundred dollars on that boxing match, make it up to your significant other by renting <laughs> Unleashed tonight." <laughs> <laughs> that is absolutely perfect. Now, will you be going on to Blu-ray and DVD yet? No, I don't know. I've got to speak to my Blue Fox level 33 and voltage to find out about that i hope so but you know that's a fading art unfortunately but we will see i mean right now we're getting a great response so i'd say that's altogether possible you know uh it's something of course i would love to have happen but uh 
you know, it's, we've already got offers from a lot of the big, all the big SVOD companies, so we will see. I, I hope so. I certainly hope so. Oh, because this is a film, and and really the whole family can see it. Not little, little kids, exactly. but... But, you know, once you get to nine, ten years old on up, I think, you know, you really can see this. There's nothing, there's nothing untoward. I test all my films during editing, like in family, and normally you can point to the strength of one group or another. We were strong across all age groups and genders. It was, it kind of blew me away, you know, that we got that wide response from all age groups, you know. Well, um, so I would agree with you. Yes, you know when you're dealing with a magical film like this, everybody's going to love it, Finn. Oh well, thank you, thank oh. you so much. I really appreciate it. Oh, Finn, this has been an absolute joy to have you on the show today. I hope you will come back. Oh, for sure, I will come back. I will. Yay! Yeah, right. I Yay! <laughs> I would love to have you back. This is just oh, fabulous. Yeah. And again, everybody unleashed. It's in theaters. It's on all your digital platforms. See it, see it, pay per view, on demand. See it, see it, see it. Do yourself a favor. You'll have a great time. That's it. Finn Taylor, thank <laughs> you so much. And I'll talk to you again soon. All right, Minnie, thanks. Much love. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Bye-bye. Finn. Bye bye. And that was Finn Taylor. And needless to say, we're not going to get to the Omari Hardwick interview today as Pam sits in the engineering booth laughing, Um, not surprised by the look on her face, (laughs) since this is how the shows go. I do not cut my talent off unless I absolutely have to. Um, Unlike, you know, most talent when they go and do a TV spot in the morning and they get four, they're relegated to four minutes I want all of my listeners to get to really understand the makings, the thinking of the filmmakers, the making of the film, as all the detail that Finn went into today. So, again, Unleashed. See it. It's fabulous. Um, Let's see. What do we have, Pam? Should we do a quick promo or can we do Rick Wall clip three? Which one? Okay, we're going to hear a little bit more from Rick Roman Wall as because I ask him, looking at, at the films that he's done, there's a thread that runs through them and the appeal of the human condition and a character study and the whole idea of moral ambiguity. And what is it that draws him to these kind of films? I've never asked you this, and I'm curious, because of Felon, Snitch, now shot caller, and even to a degree that which I love mm-hmm. destroys me. What is what is the appeal? What is the attraction for you of these human these character studies in human nature set within prison, set within the psyche of soldiers returning, mm-hmm. and even the psyche of prisoners? What is the attraction for, I, for you? I don't think I don't think life's black and white. And especially in our society today, in fact, I think that we're doing the opposite. I think we're painting the world black and white. We're trying to categorize everything into lump sums, and we're forgetting about the human nature and the humanity. And hopefully, each of the movies that I make, um, including Shot Caller, that did I see monsters in prison? You're damn right I did. But I saw a lot of humanity, and I saw people struggling. And so, I love characters that are put into a situation that you. Hopefully they're fleshed out to the point that they are real life people and you know exactly who they are. 
but they've been generalized just to a degree, which is a very fine line that I can't stop thinking about my own life. Mm-hmm. I can't stop thinking about what would I do in that in that thing. So my whole thing is about moral ambiguity because that's what life is. Life's, life is moral ambiguity. You know, do I coerce? Do I not coerce? Do I manipulate? Do I not manipulate? Mm-hmm. To your kids, let alone life itself. You know, it becomes about that. So I, I like living in that world to where it's always, it's always a little bit uneasy for a hero. I don't think I have any movie I do as a true protagonist. They're they're antiheroes. They're oh, yeah. people that we are. You know, of do how you know where how how do I navigate a world and keep myself speaking? Well, none of us do. So I, I I like to live in the gray about things. And that was Rick Roman Wall again, shot caller in theaters and limited release and on direct TV, on demand, digital platforms. See it, see it, see it. Unleashed. See it, see it, see it. We're almost out of time, but next week we're not going to be here because it is Labor Day. And the station owner really doesn't want to pay time and a half to the staff. So just we're just letting everybody know that. <laughs> but we will be back again on Monday, September 11th. And I'm very excited. Direct, Writer-director Alan G. Parker is going to be with us talking about his new documentary on the Beatles. And Brian Cavallaro will be here talking about Against the Night, which is a, a very, it's psychological thriller. So I can't wait to talk to Brian and Alan. So we're actually going to, well, what? We'll cut the show a minute early today. What do you think, Pam? We will do that. So, rush to your rush to your DV, rush to your TV, rush to your cable boxes, and you can watch Unleashed right now or Shot Caller. So, until September 11th, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.